Well, good morning, friends. It's so good to see you here. It's Christmas week. Can you believe it? Christmas week. And I'm so excited. There's so much that I love about Christmas. I love, uh, I love the opportunity to gather with family. I love the Christmas Eve service. It's my favorite service of the year. I love uh, the excuse to eat more than you should eat, as if some of us need an excuse, but I like the excuse anyway. Christmas pie and all the things that I'm looking forward to. But if I can be honest with you, there's three things I don't love about Christmas. Is that okay to say? Can I say that? There's three things I don't love about Christmas. And if I can vent to you for just a minute, I want to share with you the three things I do not love about Christmas. The first thing that I do not love about Christmas is I do not love about 95% of Christmas movies. Now listen, there's some great ones. There are some ones that you got to watch every year because they're incredible. But then there's this onslaught of like B-level films that they just put the word Christmas in front of the title and they think they have a Christmas gem on their hands. And most of them come to us via Hallmark. Uh, and, and, and these Hallmark movies where it's basically the same story over and over, just slightly different circumstances. I do not enjoy these Christmas movies. And thank God my, my wife, Erin, does not like Hallmark Christmas movies either. Otherwise, we would have a lot of conflict and a lot of counseling. Um, and so uh, I do not like most Christmas movies. Another thing I do not like is the pressure to decorate my house. We live in a neighborhood where a lot of people really like go all out. And I, my daughters shame me because of how pathetic our home looks. We got a little wreath on the front door. I try to tell them, like, this body type is not meant to climb ladders. Like, if the Lord wanted us to have lights, I would look different. I would be, I would be better up a ladder. I'm terrible up a ladder. Um, and so we don't, we don't do a lot of decorating. We do inside the house, but not outside the house. And there's this decoration shaming where you, there's actually a TV show. I think it's on ABC called The Great Christmas Light Fight Show or something. And these people that go way to the extremes and fill every square inch of their lawns with lights. It's, it's crazy. And uh, now, now it's like, it used to just be you'd compete with your neighbors, but because of social media, like you're competing with everyone. There's a family in our church, Josh and Leanne Werbeck, they're in the early service. This is their house. They posted on Instagram. Instagram. I was like, oh, you're killing me here. Like, this is perfect. And I, and I, and I, and my girls saw, my girls saw this on social media and they're looking at me, just wagging their head and just shaming me. Like, look at what he's doing and look what you're not doing. And I don't like that. I don't like the decoration shaming <laughs> of Christmas time. And then the last thing that I don't like, and I think some of you will be with me on this one is I do not like wrapping paper. I don't like it. And one of the reasons I don't like it is I'm so bad. I know it's such a simple task, but somehow I'm terrible at it. My wife is a professional wrapper of gifts, but mine always look like a disaster. Mine are so embarrassing even to give to people because they just look like, like someone who doesn't know what they're doing wrapped the gift, which is the case. And the other reason I don't really love wrapping paper is because I just kind of feel like it's a little bit of a scam. We spend money on something that's going to get torn and thrown away into a trash bag almost immediately. You know, in America, we spend every year $2.6 billion on wrapping paper. B, billion. $2.6 billion on wrapping paper, which is eventually and unceremoniously torn to shreds by eager children and then thrown away to the tune of 4 million tons of trash every year wrapping paper. Now, 
Where did we start with all of this? In 1917, there were two brothers who had a stationery store in Kansas City, Missouri, and they were having an, an exceptionally good holiday season in sales, and they had run out of tissue paper to wrap the gifts. That's what they would do back then. And so needing a replacement for the sold-out tissue paper, they went and they found what they called this fancy French paper. And it was paper that was designated to line the inside of envelopes. But it's all they had left, and so they began to put it out in their store, 10 cents a sheet, and they sold out. And so the next year, they thought, let's try it again. And sure enough, in 1918, they sold out again. So in 1919, this pair of brothers began producing and selling their own printed paper, decorative and designed for the sole purpose of wrapping gifts. And the wrapping paper industry was born. The brothers' names were Joyce and Raleigh Hall, and their store was Hallmark. So Joyce and Raleigh Hall, I have them to thank for two things I do not like about Christmas, <laughs> Hallmark movies and wrapping paper. Having said that, on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve, because we're one of those families that opens presents on Christmas Eve also, when my family hands me a gift and it's wrapped in wrapping paper, I'm okay with it. And the reason why I'm okay with it is because what's on the other side of the wrapping paper. It's a gift. What's on the other side of it? And isn't it true in life that often the best things in life are on the other side of things that we don't really like, we don't appreciate, we wouldn't choose, we don't value, we don't desire? Let me give you some examples. Health and fitness. It's on the other side of exercise and diet. Um, degrees and diplomas. They're on the other side of studying and classes and tests and late nights up learning information. New life and the miracle of birth. A little baby is on the other side of morning sickness and weird cravings and the painful labor and delivery process. And this morning's text in Matthew chapter 1 shows us that everything that Christmas, everything that the Christmas story has to offer us, which is a lot, joy, hope, and peace. Everything that the Christmas story has to offer us is found on the other side of some things that we don't always value and we don't always want. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. You can open up in your Bibles or on your phone. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you if you need a Bible this morning. We're in Matthew 1, which is the first book of the New Testament, or if you're using one of our Bibles, page 470. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, which means before they had an intimate relationship with one another, she was found to be with child, she was found to be pregnant with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The first thing that we see in this story that Christmas is on the other side of is interruptions and discomfort. Interruptions and discomfort. Does anyone like being interrupted? Does anyone enjoy their day being interrupted? Does anyone like it when your plans don't go the way that you want them to go? Of course not. And yet in this story, we see Mary and Joseph's lives dramatically and traumatically interrupted. We're going to spend this week celebrating the news that Jesus came to earth as a baby, was born in Bethlehem as our Savior, that he is the hope of the world. We'll sing songs about it. We'll read stories about it. We will gather with loved ones around that blessed event, and we'll give each other gifts to remember and honor the greatest gift that was ever given, the greatest gift of all time. But when this was first announced, that was not the reaction it received. 
When the news first came to Mary and then came to Joseph, it was felt as an interruption and as a great source of discomfort. See, here's the cold, hard facts. Number one, Mary's pregnant. Number two, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And number three, Joseph is not the father. This is a problem. Mary is pregnant. Mary is betrothed to Joseph, but Joseph knows. It said that they did not know each other. They were not intimate with each other. Joseph knew he was not the father of the baby. Now, to help us understand the, the interruption and the discomfort of this text, we have to understand what it meant to be betrothed. It's different than being engaged. In fact, in this time and in this culture, parents would usually arrange the marriage. I'm trying to bring that back, actually. Any parents want to bring that back? Parents arranging marriages. Um, but parents would arrange marriages, and here's how it worked. The fathers of the two families, would they would, they would, they would engage the couple. And often this would happen actually while they were still children. So they were engaged. But later in life, as they grew, as they grew up, the couple would become betrothed. And betrothal was not the same as engagement because during the engagement period, you could break it off for unfaithfulness or just for unwillingness. Either way, you could break it off. But once the couple entered into betrothal, which lasted for one full year, being betrothed was absolutely legally binding. During that year, although they didn't live together or sleep together, the couple was actually known as husband and wife. The only way a betrothal could be broken was by a legal divorce, legal divorce procedures. And that's why Joseph was wrestling with this idea of divorcing Mary. In fact, I learned this week that if you were betrothed to someone, and let's say two people were betrothed and the husband passed away, during the betrothal time period, it was such a legally binding situation that the, the lady would now be considered a widow for the rest of her life. Imagine this interruption and this discomfort for Joseph. And we know now, thousands of, year later, thousands of years later, we know the whole story. We know how this is going to play out. We're like, don't worry, Joseph, it's going to get better. It's all good. But he didn't know. When Mary came and said, I'm with child, and he knew he hadn't been with her, what was the only conclusion that he could have naturally come to? She was unfaithful to him, right? That's what he had to think. And now he's left with this unthinkable choice because sexual unfaithfulness during betrothal, during this time in history, and in this culture was considered adultery. And under the Mosaic law, it carried the death penalty by stoning. Now, I will say this. At this point in history, the Jewish people were not practicing that law anymore. But at the very least, there would have been an ugly public court process which would have shamed Mary and ruined her for the rest of her life. But Joseph, being a just man, as the scripture says, he didn't want this for her, even in his pain and confusion. And I know that Matthew focuses on Joseph, and so we're talking about Joseph this morning. But if you read Luke's account, it focuses more on Mary. And of course, the interruption and the discomfort that Joseph felt, Mary felt it first. <laughs> in some ways, she probably felt it much more than Joseph felt it. And here we have Jesus, the light in the darkness, the hope of the world, the savior of all. He's months away from being born but at this moment, this must have felt not like a welcomed joy, not like a source of hope, not like the path to peace, but it felt like an unwelcomed interruption and a source of great discomfort. Jesus, the Christmas miracle, is found on the other side of interruption and discomfort. And I just want to say that 2,000 years later, this is still true. Jesus is still often found on the other side of interruptions in our lives and discomfort. Jesus himself still interrupts our lives. Has anyone here had their life interrupted by Jesus? 
Has, have you following Jesus brought any discomfort into your life? Is there any way in which following Jesus has cost you anything, has inconvenienced you in any way? Following Jesus and experiencing the miracle of a relationship with Jesus requires interruption and discomfort. See, here's what we'd like. Let's be honest. Here's what you and I would like. We would like the blessings of a relationship with Jesus, but not the interruptions and not the discomfort, just the blessings and just the benefits. But don't interrupt my life. Let me live the way I want to live. Don't discomfort me. Don't ask anything of me. That's what we want. But we know in life, that's not how relationships work. When you have a child, and you have this beautiful little baby, you have this romanticized idea of what it's going to be like to have this baby in your life. I mean, eventually at a 2 a.m. feeding, you realize, like, this is an interruption. <laughs> this baby comes with a lots of interruptions and lots of discomfort. And you marry somebody else, you're going to find eventually they don't always want to watch what you want to watch. They don't always want to eat what you want to eat. They don't want to do what you want to do. There's interruptions and there's discomforts. That's the nature of relationships. If you're going to have a meaningful, life-giving relationship with another person, they're going to interrupt you and give you discomfort at times. And it's true of Jesus, too. Here's something that we learn about Jesus. Jesus did not come to Mary and Joseph on their timeline. Think about Mary. She's probably a teenage girl. Joseph would have been a little bit older than her. And they have the rest of their lives planned out. I mean, Mary's probably just thinking about this beautiful life with Joseph, this man of honor. He was a carpenter or a stone worker. He did something physical, manual labor with his hands. And she's just envisioning what life is going to be like. And then this angel shows up and says, you're going to have the son of God. And now Mary's got to go try and convince Joseph of what's happening. This did not happen on their timeline. And the truth is, is that Jesus is not super interested in our timeline. <laughs> He's not overly concerned with how you and I want things to go because he has his own plan. And our lives are often interrupted, right? Sometimes our lives are interrupted by really big things, maybe the death of a loved one, maybe the, the destruction of a, a relationship, maybe the loss of a job, maybe a medical diagnosis. Our lives are being interrupted all the time. Or maybe our lives are just being inter interrupted in smaller ways, people who require something of us, a friend who is a, more of a taker than a giver, uh, a neighbor who takes advantage of your hospitality, somebody at work who's just kind of hard to get along with, needing to show up and needing to serve. But these sort of interruptions fill our lives, and instead of running from them, sometimes we need to stop in the midst of them and say, God, what do you, you want to do through this interruption? So much of Jesus' ministry, he was being interrupted. He was walking to heal this young girl, and a woman crawled through the crowd and grabbed hold of him, interrupted him. Jesus was going to have a nice, quiet evening, interrupted by a man named Nicodemus who had a question. An afternoon to himself, interrupted by a Samaritan woman who needed to know the grace of God and the truth of God. Jesus constantly interrupted by the blind men who cried out on the side of the road, Son of David, have mercy, or the lepers who came to the edge of the town and yelled out to him. And yet for Jesus, he never saw people as interruptions. He never saw, he saw the Father's will happening. And one of the things I want to encourage you with is this week, as you got your plans and your Christmas plans and the things you need to do and your shopping list and your cooking list, like don't miss God in the interruptions of your day. Amen. Somebody gets in line in front of you with 30 items in their basket when it's a 15 item or less thing, maybe that's an interruption. Maybe that's someone that needs, you need to have a conversation with. Somebody out of nowhere reaches out to you and you don't really have time for them. Slow down. Jesus is in the interruptions Jesus also will not let us to continue to live our comfortable lives as we did before. There's a discomfort of sacrificing for others. 
taking up our cross and following Jesus, loving our enemies, serving others, discomfort. Christmas, the hope, joy, peace found in Christmas is on the other side often of interruptions and discomfort. There's a story in the Old Testament that's found in Genesis chapter 32. It's about one of the patriarchs, one of the fathers of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, and then this third one, Jacob. And Jacob was a deceiver, and Jacob was kind of a nuanced character who did bad things and good things. And Jacob is having this crisis where he is about to be reunited with his brother, which sounds wonderful, right? Except the last time he saw his brother, his brother said, I'm going to kill you because of what you stole from me. And now Jacob is about to have a showdown with his brother Esau. When his dad's not there anymore to protect him, he knows that tomorrow he's going to see him and his life might be at stake. And Jacob is alone with his thoughts and his fears and his worries and his uncertain future. And this man comes out of nowhere and jumps on Jacob and starts wrestling him. Weird, right? Well, we know from the text that this man is no man at all, actually. It's the angel of the Lord. And whenever you see the phrase, the angel, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is, what, that is what we call a theophany, which simply means this. It is the second person of the Godhead showing up before the incarnation. It's Jesus before the manger. So Jesus shows up, knocks Jacob over and begins to wrestle with him, which is just, it's, it's really a microcosm of Jacob's entire life because Jacob has wrestled with God and man his entire life to get his way. And now he's wrestling with someone new. <laughs> he's wrestling with God himself. And as Jesus is wrestling with Jacob, Jesus says, Jacob, let me go because the day is coming. You see, he, Jesus knew, if you see my face, Jacob, it's done for you. So let me go before the sun rises. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's holding on with everything so he can get the blessing of God. And it says that Jesus, this angel of the Lord, this man, touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. And that Hebrew word touch is literally, it's just touch. It's not force. It's not strength. It's not judo. It's not some crazy move. He just touches Jacob's hip and his hip goes out of socket and in that moment Jacob realizes oh boy there has been great power being withheld <laughs> all night long this is not a fair fight and yet Jesus made himself available to Jacob to wrestle with by withholding his power it's a beautiful foreshadowing of how, what Jesus did when he came to earth for us but here's what I want us to notice about this story for the rest of Jacob's life he walks with a limp he's never healed of that and one of the commentators says that if you've really encountered Jesus, if you've wrestled with him, if you've met with him, if he's interrupted your life, if he's intruded on your night, if he's brought discomfort to you, then one of the surest signs that you've really encountered Jesus is that you will go through life with what this commentator calls a joyful limp. A joyful limp. The joy coming from knowing that you have the blessing of the Father, the blessing of Jesus, but the limp being, I'm changed forever by my encounter, and I'll never walk the same, even if it means there's a brokenness about me that I would not have chosen for myself, the joyful limp. The interruptions and the discomfort leave us with a joyful limp, but on the other side of all of that is the miracle of Christmas. The second thing that we see that stands between us and everything that Christmas has to offer often is listening and obedience. Let's look at this. Go back to the story, verse 20. 
It says, but as, G- as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, this is an angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord. So this is an angel. Appears to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He's saying it's a miraculous conception. This is, as we call it, the virgin birth. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but knew her not, which means he was not intimate with her, until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Throughout the Christmas story, you know what we find? We find people who listen readily and obey instantly. Listen and obey. And so much of what keeps us from all that God has for us is our unwillingness or our inconsistency in those two things. We do not listen well. And we do not obey well. And yet here Joseph hears. Now, Joseph, he heard the angel in a dream, a pretty supernatural way. And we believe that God can do that. We believe that God still speaks to people through dreams and visions. But for the most part, that's not the primary way that he speaks to people. It's not the primary way that he speaks to me anyway. Usually the way that he speaks to me is through the wisdom of other people, listening to people who have been where I'm headed. The teaching of the word, that's why we gather like this and we submit ourselves to teaching from scripture so that we can hear, not from me, you're not trying to hear from me this morning, you're trying to hear from the Lord. What does the Lord have to say through his word? Sometimes the Lord speaks to us through spiritual gifts. When we gather, the Holy Spirit gives somebody something to share with all of us and they share it out. And those spiritual gifts are ways that we can listen. And sometimes we just learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. He just whispers to us and speaks to us and guides us and directs us. But the surest, most reliable way that God speaks to us is through his scripture. I've heard it said, don't say God is silent when your Bible is closed. God speaks to us through his word. He, he is a speaking God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, the very beginning to the end, God is speaking. The question is, are we a listening people? There's so many obstacles in this world to listening. I just finished a book called All There, All There, by a lady named Gail Johnson. She's a pastor leader from the Northwest And the premise of the book is that spiritual leadership requires awareness and attentiveness. We've got to be listening and hearing. And when I was reading this book, she quotes this guy, I can't remember who it is, someone, some Nobel Peace Prize Award winner who was talking about the way our world is today. And he used this phrase, he said, we live in the age of continuous partial attention. Continuous, meaning always, Partial, in part, attention, meaning that we're never really fully present. We're not. We're, we're distracted. You're, even as you're sitting here this morning, you're, at some point your phone is probably buzzed in your pocket. I have to put my watch, my, my Apple watch on, do not disturb. Otherwise, this thing is buzzing while I'm up here teaching. I get it. You're thinking about later today. You're thinking about the holidays. You're thinking about it. And we have all these constant distractions coming at us. And it's creating this, this wealth of information. Whenever there's a wealth of something, it creates a poverty of something else. And the book says because there's a wealth of information now, what, we've, what we have is a poverty of attention. 
We have more information than ever. We have less attention or ability to give attention than other and, and, and than ever. And of course, social media doesn't help because all the things that we use from Facebook to Instagram to TikTok, those things are like hitting us at 20-second spurts, seven-second spurts, and we're just flipping and we're flipping and we're flipping, and all slowly our attention span is just decreasing. And I know teachers are probably feeling it dramatically in schools. And here we are, a people who don't know how to listen to each other, let alone know how to listen to God. And, and this is what I was thinking about this week, is when was the last time, this is how I felt convicted this week, so I'm going to let you feel it too. When was the last time, when was the last time I was fully attentive to the Holy Spirit? Like, fully attentive. Not even listening to music, worship music. Not even reading, my, just present, alert, aware, and listening. There's this Jewish prayer that's at the center of the morning and evening prayer. It's called the Shema. And it starts with this phrase, hear, O Israel. And that's right at the heart of the Old Testament um, faith is the willingness to hear and to listen. So some of the things that I've tried to do after reading the book, because I gave some practical ideas, is I'm trying to drive in my car at times without stuff happening. Because I get in the car and I'll turn on a podcast, I'll turn on music, I'll get on a phone call. I'll do, but I'm trying to find a few minutes every day to just drive in the silence and just listen. God, is there anything that I need to know? Is there anything that you want to say to me? Positioning my heart to listen in specific times. There's another thing I've been trying to do. When I wake up in the morning, when my eyes first open up and I'm just lying there, instead of reaching for my phone, which is my instinct always, instead of getting up and starting to get ready right away, I'm trying to force myself to take 20, 30 seconds and just lay still and listen. God, good morning. I'm here. I'm listening. I'm aware. I'm alert. And what I think happens is that if we will begin to be structured in that way and create some of those habits in our lives, it'll help us listen better in the moments when we can't do that. Because there are moments you need to hear from God, but you can't shut everything out. In the midst of conflict at work and everybody's yelling and screaming, you got to hear from God. But you can't tell everybody, all right, 30 seconds, everybody quiet. I'm going to listen to God. But we learn to hear his voice. I'm not talking about anything overly mystical or weird. I'm just talking about uh, a relationship with a speaking God who wants to lead and guide us. We want to know his will. We want to know his guidance. We want to know him. But do we listen? Do we listen? It's not just listening. It's the second half of this is obedience. It says that when Joseph woke up from his sleep, he immediately did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. Instant obedience. Joseph didn't wake up and go, oh, well, I, you know, he didn't go to his friends and say, what do you think I should do? God told me this, but I kind of feel this way. He didn't find people who would talk him out of what God, he just obeyed. And listen, the Christian faith is simpler than we make it sometimes. It's basically a life of listening and obeying. What is the Father saying to us, and how do we respond? James says we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we need to be doers of the word, those who respond, even if obedience is costly. And I believe that Joseph was, obe was able to obey God in this huge moment because he had a lifetime of obeying God in smaller moments. And some of us are all in on obeying God when he asks us something big, but the little things, we don't pay as much attention to Oh, yeah, God, whatever you want me to do, you want me to speak up for you, I'll speak up for you. But we're not in his word regularly. We're not spending time in his presence. We're not making disciples. God, you want me to go to the ends of the earth? I'll go to the ends of the earth. But you won't, we won't go to church regularly. We won't gather regularly. We won't submit ourselves to the regular gathering with saints. I, I, 
you know, I was thinking about this week, I've never, um, I've never seen someone grow less engaged with their local church family and fall more in love with Jesus at the same time. I've never seen it. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying in 20 plus years of ministry, I've never seen it happen. What I've seen is the exact opposite. The lower the priority of being together is, the more that their faith begins to struggle and wander and lose their way. And I know there's a lot of important, real reasons to not be here all the time. However, if we're going to obey, one of the simplest things we can do is obey God's word to gather together and to encourage one another. And maybe you don't need this message, and maybe you don't need the singing, but maybe someone needs you today. Maybe someone needs an encouraging word for you, from you, for you. There's ways that we strengthen each other, and we can't strengthen each other if we're not together. And so it's this obeying, listening, and obeying. And then the last thing, and I'll finish. Pastor Antonia, you could join me. The last thing that stands between us and all that Christmas has to offer is gifts and grace. The angel said that this baby is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a gift. He did not come from us, he came for us. Isaiah 9, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah said that there will be a light that will shine upon people in their darkness. I love that Isaiah, I love that Isaiah didn't say there will be a light that shines from the people. Because that would mean that we have to save ourselves and we have to generate this light. But it's a light that shines upon us. Verse 6 of Isaiah 9, it's a child that has been given to us. A child is born, a son is given. The hope and peace of Christmas, like Jesus, are gifts to be received. And we cannot give this gift to ourselves. We must humble ourselves and receive the gift of Jesus. I want to point something out here. The angel calls Joseph, Joseph, son of David. Joseph was a descendant of King David. Joseph, son of David. Why? One of the commentators says this. Israel had endured a string of evil and feckless kings before collapsing and then having no king for centuries. Israel was captured by Assyria in, I think it was 722 B.C., and dragged off into exile. In 586 B.C., Judah was dragged off into exile by Babylon. So the world powers of that day, Assyria and Babylon and eventually Persia, they take God's people, they drag them into exile, they lose their identity. They had evil king after evil king, and then eventually they have no king because they have no kingdom. And when Joseph and Mary are walking the earth, the Jewish people have lost really their sense of who they are. By Joseph's day, David's line, the kingly line, is exhausted. It's nearly invisible. But Jesus' birth reignites hope because the angel says he's Joseph, son of David, which means this, that Jesus, listen, Jesus is from the line of David, but he's not from the flesh of David. And that's why the virgin birth matters so much. Jesus came through the line of David, but he's not from the flesh of David. He's not a naturally born person. He is conceived from the Holy Spirit, which means he can save us because ordinary flesh cannot save. If Jesus was born just like you and I are born, then he would have been born with a sin nature. He would have been ordinary flesh. He would not have been able to live righteous in our place. He would not have been able to save us from our sins. And yet Jesus was a gift. Who came. So here's what God did. God wrote himself into the line of David so that Jesus would be a kingly descendant of David but not from the flesh of David so that he could be perfectly righteous the way that we should have been but can't be. He's the gift of Christmas. And then lastly, we see there's a gift and then there's grace. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from his sins. You know, the name Jesus was actually a common name back then. It comes from the name Joshua. And Jesus was given to Hebrew sons 
to be a symbolic hope that the Lord was going to someday send salvation through a Messiah who would purify his people, make them properly Jewish, so to speak, and would save them from the oppression of the Romans. And yeah, Jesus came to do those things in a way, but the angel here points to something more important that Jesus came to do, not just to save us from the enemies around us, but to save us from the enemies within us, to save us from our sins. And it's only God's grace, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, that Jesus would leave heaven and come to earth to save us from our, our sins, something we could not do for ourselves. So in closing, how do we experience the miracle of Christmas? We gotta get through the other side of some things. We have to receive the gift of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. We have to respond with a life of listening and obedience, and we have to welcome interruptions and even discomfort as means of grace by which Jesus shapes us and makes us like him. C.S. Lewis says that the Son of God became like man so that men might become like God. And that's the gift and the miracle of Christmas. Let's pray together.